Welcome to Tammy Sparacino Journal Club Casino Podcast, hosted by Tammy Sparacino. We need to welcome John. Yes, welcome to John. John Ingram coming to us yeah. from Orlando, Florida. How are you, John? Nice to see you again, as usual. Good morning, John. Uh, we're almost done with summer, huh? Almost done with summer. Yep. So, uh, so very quickly, um, we're going to have a little change. Mm-hmm. We have, uh, of course, been experiencing here in Houston, I'm sure people watch the news, the fourth wave of COVID, um, and it is killing us. Um, we are, it's killing them too, uh, but it is, uh, we have just been swamped and our schedules are such that we just cannot uh, keep up with everything that we need to do just with clinical cases, much less our own lives, which don't exist, and then also doing this. So we're going to have a change today. Uh, there was a change in the schedule from Vanderbilt. There's going to be a change in the schedule today, Mm -hmm. and we are going to do, instead of the Journal Club today, we're going to postpone that till uh, 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 the next one, Mm -hmm. and I'm going to do a presentation on ECMO cannulation strategies, because this does seem to be a common question that we get, and I just want to do, I've done this presentation before but maybe I'm going to look at it from a different way or add different things to it. So it's a topic that I'm familiar with, I'm comfortable with, and hopefully it will be uh, instructive to those watching it. Uh, and you have any questions, we'll just open the phone lines right off the bat. And uh, if uh, John and Tammy, if you have any questions or comments or want clarification of something, please don't hesitate to just simply interrupt me, okay? That's the best way to do this, I believe, uh, for it to actually have some uh, meaning for everyone. So let's, uh, with all of that said, I'll just go ahead and get forward, go forward with this. So you really need to think about the ECMO, whether it be VV or VA, doesn't make any difference, but the vascular system, the cardiovascular system, along with the pulmonary circulation and everything else, is a closed system. It is not an open system, it is a closed system. And in order to accomplish what it is you're trying to accomplish, whether that is oxygenation or mechanical circulatory support, or combination of those two things, uh, right heart decompression, uh, if you have to worry about uh, uh, left-sided dilatation and uh, congestion, whether you have AI or whether you have uh, LV failure and and high pulmonary circulation or high bronchial return to the heart, all of these various factors are all interconnected so that one thing affects many other things. And that is that relationship exists no matter what type of ECMO or what type of cannulation you are choosing. And understanding those relationships is the first and most important part of understanding ECMO. The two questions are, what am I trying to accomplish? And then by doing this, what effect will it have on something else? And if you don't really understand the native circulation, both systemic and pulmonary, you can't understand ECMO. You have to understand it uh, 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 to a very detailed perspective. And it's not a complex system, but it can become very complex in the interplay that goes on. So the first thing you have to ask yourself, of course, when it comes to ECMO is, is this patient an appropriate candidate? And this is published in ELSO. It is a basic algorithm. I'm not gonna go through it all, uh, but if you just look at it and you can get it online, it's in the ELSO Red Book, but you can find it online it is something you should keep with you because it has some very good lessons to it. And one of the most important lessons 
is choosing VV over VA. And one of the biggest problems people have is choosing VA because they're showing signs of cardiogenic shock. The most important question in this decision is, is the cardiogenic shock a result of hypoxia or is it a result of some other cardiac uh, issue, coronary artery disease, whatever the case may be, or embolic, such as a PE. If, you, if the cardiogenic shock is purely caused by hypoxia, then VV ECMO is the correct choice when selecting VV or VA for those patients. Now, you're not necessarily going to go wrong putting it patient, the patient on VA, mm-hmm. but VV ECMO is much easier to manage. Anytime you can avoid the, the arterial uh, system, you're going to be better off. And if they don't need mechanical circulatory support, you really don't, shouldn't be giving it to them if it's just uh, uh, an oxygenation problem. So this is a very good algorithm. I highly recommend it. So the classic indications of mechanical assistance is a bridge to recovery, a bridge to bridge, a bridge to transplantation. A bridge to bridge just simply means you're going to put them on a more durable device Mm -hmm. and wait for transplantation. So you could bridge to bridge to bridge to transplantation. Mm -hmm. And then destination therapy, this is what you're going to get and this is all you're going to get and this is where you're going to be for the remainder of your life. But now in this acute setting, we find that the bridge to whatever seems reasonable, including withdrawal after a few days, which rarely ever happens, even in refractory multi-organ failure. And we had Dr. Duvall here to talk about that and some of the ethical concerns. And um, there's a very good lecture, um, and I should have put it on here. In fact, I don't know. Well, I'm going to try to find it and put it in the credits after the show. There's a recent uh, uh, presentation that was given by Methodist, and uh, Dr. McGilbrey was on this, mm. uh, and so was Dr. Suarez, their transplant uh, surgeon. Uh, both excellent, and uh, the other two folks were also excellent, but I don't know them, and I can't remember their names right now. But this was a great uh, ECMO presentation on the selection and the ethical considerations that you have to make when making these decisions about to use ECMO or not to use ECMO, especially in the face of the pandemic that we are currently facing. Uh, You know, there is a, a real appetite to save everyone. And this is a, an issue that I am having. And this may be more of a discussion. I doubt even seriously I'm going to get through all of these slides. But I, I feel these are very relevant discussion points that we have to have and get that discussion going out in the community with you guys that, uh, that we work with. And so we want to save everyone. But at what cost? So depending on whose data you look at, You have survival with VV ECMO for COVID ARDS of as high as 70 and 80%. You have the ELSO data, which is about 48% um, uh, mortality, I'm sorry. So uh, mortality of 20 to 30 in some places. You have survival or or mortality at 48% from ELSO, which is a 52% survival. Mm Um, And then you have our experience, which is much lower than that. Right now, when you extrapolate out our most recent run, we're at 25%. That's where we are. So, and what is survival? So, is survival to me the same as survival to you, as survival to somebody else? Are you going to be a pulmonary cripple for the rest of your life? We have patients right now on ECMO that are technically transplant candidates, but we can't get them into a transplant center. And so we are now attempting to keep them on ECMO for months as we try to get whatever lung recovery we're going to get or adaption to their current 
situation. We're, we're trying to do a lot more aggressive PT. We're doing things. And we have had a tremendous success. We had Finally, a, we can say that, right? Yes. It's been we a had while. A, we had, it has been quite a while, but we had a patient who, uh, and actually we had two. The other one wasn't COVID, though. The, yeah. the young lady from St. Luke's that was incredible. She's lost both of her legs. She lost part of a hand, but she's getting ready to run the para uh, uh, Ironman competition and uh, an incredible, incredible human being. Yeah. And, and this is what I'm saying is survival to her is this is good. Yeah, she's happy. I don't know that I would be that way. I don't know. And it's very difficult. It's personal. For, we should not, right. We, and we as medical professionals cannot project our personal no. feelings on people and make those decisions. It's fundamentally wrong. Um, but at the same time, a lot of these patients have no say in what we're doing. They're incapable of making any decisions and their families are put in the situation of having to be uh, well, speaking for them. If, if I could interject just for a moment, I mean, just recently we were consulted uh, for a VV ECMO for a COVID patient, very young, um, 31, 32 years old, uh, extremely morbidly obese, mm-hmm. um, unvaccinated, uh, got COVID, became very ill, was in the hospital for quite a long period of time on the vent uh, for uh, somewhere around two weeks when finally that wasn't going to be enough. And so we were, uh, you know, our cardiac team was consulted for VV ECMO. And um, we were literally at the moment of we're about to, you know, do this ECMO. The OR team has come up bedside. I'm there. Uh, We've got our, our circuit primed and ready. And uh, I start reading the patient's chart just to get some of the specifics, you know. And uh, just as a matter of practice, I always read consent and read blood consent and discovered this patient does not consent to blood. And we know what that kind of run's gonna be like. Uh, You know, a COVID ECMO run's not gonna be short, especially not for someone who's already past the window of what we have all kind of figured out is a good window to already be Mm -hmm. on mechanical ventilation. And uh, so that became the discussion of, is this a a right decision? Yes, this patient uh, really does need the ECMO for the oxygenation, but his wishes were to not receive blood. I don't really know the, the genesis of that. I know it was not religious. That's really all I know. But then the family was put into a, a real tough debate, and they were split decision. Some wanted to do uh, his wishes and say no blood, which then uh, you know our cardiac team had decided no blood means no ECMO. Um, and then the other half thought, well, this is you know this is going to save his life or has the potential you know to be able to save his life or at least extend it some. And they, they wanted to do it. So what was the right thing to do? Ultimately, in that situation, um, the power of attorney person uh, within the family decided to honor this patient's original wishes of never wanting uh, any kind of banked blood. And so that's what they did, and ECMO was not initiated. But you're right. We're making decisions for these people. And, you know, it's hard. We can't. Put our, um, we can't put our thoughts of what life is to them or what uh, sacrifices to make to get to that life. It's very, very difficult. I agree with that 100%. And it's also very difficult for the patient's families. Yes, of course. Being put in that situation. Of course. Absolutely. So, you know, I think it begs the question, you know, which we've heard many times on this program, just because you can doesn't necessarily mean you should. Uh, but who are we to make those decisions, it's right? It's very difficult. And look at our most recent success. Yes. And uh, there was no question that uh, she was on ECMO for three months. Um, Which is an incredibly and, long time for our ECMO program. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And uh, she had massive hemorrhages. She had, uh, th- there, were, there, was, there were so many times we did not, now she stayed single organ failure, but there were many times we did not believe she was going to be able to survive, and she defied all of the odds. She was a DNR for a and very long time. Yes, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. Okay, so anyway, going back to the slides, these are very good talking points. Um, 
Some of the VA indications, cardiogenic shock with or without MI, myocarditis, pulmonary hypertension, right heart failure, PE, of course, with hemodynamic compromise, of course, cardiac arrest, uh, where you're doing eCPR, medication overdose, uh, non-ischemic cardiomyopathy, uh, including sepsis, bridge to decision to transplant or VAD or to let the patient expire, uh, support post-cardiac uh, surgery. Of course, post-cardiotomy is not as very common. We've seen that. We don't see it very often, but it's a very common use of ECMO. Mm -hmm. uh, most common VA ECMO is peripheral cannulation from the femoral vein to the femoral artery. You can leave them centrally cannulated, obviously, uh, or you can, uh, of course, in pediatric world, do the uh, right IJ into the uh, right atrium and then to the uh, right carotid. This is what central cannulation looks like. Uh, and if you look towards the bottom of the screen, if you look at the picture, the bottom of the screen is the patient's head and you see the catheters mm -hmm. being tunneled out and they have an arterial a uh, venous and they have a right superior pulmonary vein vent and that's what you see in there but you notice that that heart looks very edematous very swollen uh, not really very good decompression uh, in this and it could be just all edema but it also looks like the uh, ventricle is not being unloaded you know when you get to this point when you're dealing with this kind of a patient almost always you see the patient is massively fluid overloaded we've used all kinds of vasoactive substances fluid spaces and compartments have been changed uh, from the vasculature the heart's not pumping um you know you could have a little bit of ai it goes into the ventricle and the right superior pulmonary vein vent is great but if you have a really competent mitral valve you may not actually empty that lv very well so uh there's a lot there's as i said there's a lot of um interplay with things that are going on, but that heart on the right looks very, very, very sick. Hey, Joe? Yes. When you cannulate your uh, pulmonary vein like that or, or, and or the left atrium, you, had two, you made one really good point. There's another point. If you have a really competent mitral valve, <clears throat> you're limited, but you're also not able to evacuate the left ventricle if you have a lot of AI. Right. So we tend to almost routinely, if we're going to do something like that, cannulate the left, eight, the left ventricular, the left, left ventricular, you know, apex, and uh, and but then again, you have to make a hole in the left ventricle, and that that's that's involved. Yeah. So I could see why people may not want to do that, but discuss uh, a couple things for for people listening to keep in mind as to the pros and cons of cannulating the left atrium. Yes. Well, I believe that the, the best approach towards LV decompression with VA ECMO, whether it be centrally cannulated and especially peripherally cannulated, is an Impella uh, 2.5 as an LV vent. Mm -hmm. uh, if you cannot generate sufficient uh, uh, LV function to have pulsatile flow, uh, because you definitely have to be concerned about left ventricular thrombus formation if that you are unable to, and, and wall tension, uh, but you have so much to worry about. Leaving the LV distended um, and not emptied and no way to empty it is, in my view, a devastating, uh, non-recoverable uh, scenario. So this is what it looks like when the patient leaves the OR. You can see that you can approximate the chest uh, and uh, close it, and you don't have to leave it open. Uh, and uh, sometimes the heart is so swollen and distended you can't, and you have to put the Viabond on it. But in this particular case, they could, and that's the advantage of tunneling out the cannulas rather than having them come directly out of the chest. Um, here is just a, uh, an example of VA ECMO with uh, the uh, different approaches. One is cannulating the subclavian for the return. One is uh, cannulating the uh, femoral artery. Um, the, obviously, the advantages of cannulating the subclavian is that you reduce your, uh, your, uh, your uh, uh, Harlequin syndrome or, or, or North-South syndrome or 
differential hypoxemic problem. It's all the same thing, means the same thing. Uh, and, uh, but the disadvantage, of course, is that you tend to have, you have to modulate the flow, make sure that it's going to the, uh, to the uh, uh, down the anominate and that you're not over perfusing the arm. And so there's some technique oriented uh, uh, things that have to occur when you do this, it's, or you'll also have limb ischemia. So you can't just shove a cannula in the subclavian and think that you've solved all of your problems. So you have other problems associated with this. Uh, both have their own problems and you have to sort of pick your poison with that. Um, here's another configuration and I don't wanna get into all the exotic cannulations. I'm just putting these slides up there in the interest of time uh, to show you that there's standard ECMO, VA and VV. And it's, you always put a dash, and John, you're, you've done a very good job at teaching us this. Uh, the dash is where the oxygenator is. Mm -hmm. So in the scenario A, you have two venous drainages pumping into the oxygenator, going into a single arterial arm. And if you look at G, you have two venous accesses going into both an artery and a vein. So you're draining venous and you're doing so combination of VV and VA in that scenario. And again, this slide is readily available online. You can also screenshot it from us, whatever you really want to do. But uh, this is something that I think is what I term exotic cannulations. So you have standard VA, VV, and then you have exotic cannulations. And it can go from here. These are just a a, 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 a number of them, but there are many other configurations that you are able to do. Most of the time when you go find a patient, you're gonna find lines that look like this. You're not gonna actually be able to see where the cannulas are, and that is so incredibly important. And as I said from the very beginning, you have to understand the normal anatomical vascular cardiopulmonary systems in order to understand what these lines are doing. And what's very interesting about this is that if you're not really paying attention, you would not notice, and I'm gonna to try to highlight it here with my red, this is obviously venous, and it's going right here and going to the pump, okay? This is your venous, your access line. It's going over there. This line here that's wide into it, you notice that it's red blood. I'm sorry, right here. You notice right here, I'm sorry, that it's very red. So how is that possible? We've discussed this slide before. Well, the reason for it is, is that this is a uh, catheter going transeptal into the left atrium, and that's why it's red. They're using it to try to decompress the left side and it's wide into this blue. And if you're just walking in and looking at this, it just doesn't look like that. You wouldn't know that if you didn't know what was going on with mm -hmm. the cannulation. So just having tubes come out and having them with different colors, doesn't uh, not necessarily the blood of the tape, doesn't necessarily mean that's really what it is because that one doesn't have any tape at all. And so you have to really understand what the cannulation is to understand what it is you're doing. Uh, you also notice that they're using pulse, uh, cerebral oximetry nears on the legs. They're not connected to anything, but they do have it. And they have, of course, a distal perfusion cannula here that's coming off of the arterial line and going into the uh, SFA in order to be able to perfuse this leg distally. And they're double checking to make sure this leg is also doing well. Some common complications, the most dramatic of them, of course, is Harlequin syndrome. Again, there's multiple names for this. There's Harlequin syndrome, there's North-South syndrome, there's differential hypoxemia syndrome. And basically all that says is if you're draining blood from the right atrium and you're pumping it back into the femoral artery and your LV function is improving, but your lungs are not contributing or contributing enough then your LV will pump out deoxygenated blood mm -hmm. and your arterial return won't have enough oomph or horsepower to perfuse this part of the arch, which are your head vessels. 
So everything from the diaphragm down is nicely perfused and pink, and everything from the shoulders on up to the head is uh, blue. And it can be any variation of that. So you could draw a sample from down here. It doesn't necessarily have to be just blue. Your lungs just might not be working very well, but your LD is working a good. Um, and this just may be a, high, a lower oxygen than what you would have here. And that could be reflected in drawing, and that's why right I'll side. say this. You Right, with VA uh, ECMO with peripheral return uh, cannulation, femoral artery, you must have a right radial saturation, whether it be the pulse ox on that finger or your blood gases that you're drawing from the right rear. That's, prefer that's preferred. Uh, but if you're measuring it on the left side, you may have enough power to get to here, yeah. but not enough here. So this is deoxygenated, this is oxygenated. This mixing cloud that you see, the purple, can move up and down depending on the force of your flow in relation to the LV output. So again, it all is interconnected. Right is right, remember? Correct, right is right, exactly. Yeah. That's yeah. exactly, very good. Yeah. Um, this is what a foot looks like when it doesn't have a distal perfusion cannula. Mm. You can see that it's you know very mottled, ischemic, necrotic, it looks bad blisters, things mm. like that. This is not something that you want to see. Uh, that's, again, a look at that, and this is what it looks like. Again, I'm just going to kind of zip right through these, and there's the line being that was put in, and you can see it over here with mm -hmm. the, uh, femoral, the iliac being cannulated and then the SFA being cannulated right here, mm -hmm. and that's what it looks like uh, if you had it opened up. One of the big problems we talked about is LV wall stress. If you have VA ECMO, even with central cannulation, this can be a problem. You'll notice that your LV wall tension, your wall stress goes way up. When this happens, you're going to increase the resistance to coronary blood flow, and you're going to become even, so you have a heart you're trying to recover that is now distended increased wall stress, decreased perfusion through the coronaries. And so here you see the tandem, which is on the, in the, the transeptal that I showed you in the, draining the left atrium. Um, and I'm not saying that's not necessarily going to help at all, because it will help, um, but the impella is certainly superior to reducing the LV uh, distension. And you can, this is a 5.0, but you can put in a 2.5. If all you need to do is vent the LV, a 2.5 should be more than enough. Mm -hmm. um, here is, is this a video? I don't know if it's a video or not. It may not be. But here, if you look in the right, you see VA ECMO without the impella in. And you can see the LV right here being grossly dilated. Mm -hmm. You know, here's your mitral valve here. And you can actually see the septum is deviated into the right ventricle. And this is a really good image of a significantly dilated uh, left ventricle. And over here, you see the same ventricle only with the impella in place. And you can see the septum has come back over. Your RV size is much better and your LV wall or your LV chamber is much uh, uh, more compressed so or decompressed. Much better scenario to have. Um, this talks about the use of impella. I'm just going to skip over that. And this is basically the same thing. And that the, there are benefits and advantages for using that in terms of reducing LV distension. Don't be this guy. We've talked about it so many times. Never use VA ECMO. Uh, and I use guy in a unisex way, guys and girls, uh, men and women. People. Don't be this person. There you go. Never use VA ECMO with peripheral cannulation for pure pulmonary failure when there is no LV dysfunction. If you do, I can guarantee you, you will have a bad outcome. Mm-hmm. Done.
This is what the impella looks like, and that was actually a test that I usually do when I give this talk of what is this red tube going into the venous as an access. Uh, but that's what it looks like. You see it coming up the inferior vena cava into here, into the right atrium, going transeptal, and then being in the uh, left atrium here. So you can appreciate that if you have a competent mitral valve and you have a little bit of AI on top of it, this may not work so well at decompressing this chamber because you have this valve in the way. This is a Protec Duo cannula. I think it is an excellent cannula for um, some RV support, not total support, but some RV support. They say the 29, which is a pretty big cannula to get to come down and make this big turn right here. Uh, but uh, my, my personal experience with it clinically is I, you never get close to a 3.9 liter flow. I think that's rated based on uh, a bench studies using mm -hmm. saline and mm -hmm. the cannula not in that configuration. Um, although it is designed to be bendable like that, it does make a difference in flow characteristics. So I've seen much lower flows in the low twos versus that high. Um, it's, you know, it, it does, limit or eliminate just about recirculation. Uh, but for a pure ECMO cannula, I have not had good experience with it. Others may have different experience, but I do think it's an excellent choice versus an Impella RP for some RV dysfunction and some supplemental oxygenation on top of it. In that case, I think it is a good choice. One of the, the two limitations, obviously placement, or three limitations, placement, flow, and cost. It's a very, very expensive uh, cannula. You cannot just buy the cannula to buy the whole system. Yeah, the whole system. And it's about $18,000. Um, there's some reason they can't sell just the cannula in the United States. They do in Canada, however, uh, that I know of, and they sell it for about $11,000 per cannula there. I don't know that the cost uh, justifies its functionality, but I think in certain circumstances, it does have utility. Yeah. Uh, there's the tandem system kind of attached. Uh, this is a nice chest radiograph, and on the right, you can see it outlining the use of the tandem, and you can see the impella both combined. So you see the tandem coming in here, uh, the Protect Duo, rather, going into the pulmonary artery, and you see the impella here coming in from the subclavian, going down through the ascending aorta, aortic valve, and then down into the LV. So there's a combination of the two, yeah. uh, which may be the right thing for that particular patient. I always put this slide up. I go back to it because I want to remind everyone again, the cardiovascular, cardiopulmonary, and vascular systems are a cl are closed systems and again they all act on each other in one way or another you cannot look at them as in a vacuum your basic indications for vv ecmo murray score gray i won't go through all of them but basically you really want to look at that pf ratio if you're less than a hundred uh, with high peep on an fio2 of greater than 80 percent you're pretty much ready to put that patient on ECMO at that point in time. Any longer um, would, uh, would, would not result in a different outcome. Um, and here's how you do the Murray Lung Score. It's uh, not difficult at all. You can get this online. You can also get it from our app. Uh, and uh, uh, am I allowed to show that real quick? Sure. Okay, so if I come here and go there, so we have this really cool app uh, you can buy. I think I talked about it in the very beginning, but if you go, uh, I think, where, where do I have it at? I think I have it in ECMO. Do I have the Murray Lung Score on here? I'm not sure, but you certainly yeah, have a Murray score, yeah, Murray for, score for acute mm -hmm. lung injury. You can put in the various uh, information. You can put its four quadrants. You can look at your PF ratio, which is, uh, I won't make them too bad. I'll make it 100 to there. 
um, and we'll put the patient is on not, uh, 10 a peep and uh, we'll look at the compliance and we'll say the compliance is uh, re in the middle. I won't make it terribly bad and calculate and your Murray lung score on the output here is 2.8 points. It is severe, but this patient is not eligible for ECMO based on this information. Doesn't mean they're not a good candidate. They're they just not eligible based on that score. Because the Murray score should be greater than three. Yes, correct. Mm -hmm. And I can go back to that. Oh, yeah. And it'll tell you that. So you want your Murray score to be greater than three. But you can't, again, look at just that. You have yeah. to look at everything. Uh, but it's a good score to look at. Here's your PF ratio. Um, this is just a nomogram that you can use. Now, with that said, um, I'm going to just sort of play around here a little bit today. If you guys will indulge me a little bit. And you can go back to our app and you can put this here and you can say the PAO2 is uh, 85. The FIO2 is 100%. Calculate your PF ratio is 85. This patient is based on the criteria that's published, definitely eligible for ECMO. Okay. So I hope that's of some use, but that's basically just a calculation based on this nomogram that is, of course, published that you can get. Here are some slides of the VB ECMO. This is dual cannulation, where you're cannulated in the IBC for your access, and the right IJ. This is a technique that's been used many, many, many times. People still do use this technique, and it works very effectively. You do tend to have a little higher recirculation than the single cannulation technique, but that can also be tricky and it's not necessarily always. The biggest disadvantage to this is in mobility. You have a big cannula stuck in the patient's groin. There's infection risk, which is increased rather than being in the neck, but there's mobility issues. You wanna sit the patient in the chair. You wanna walk the patient. Can it be done? Yes, it can be done. Is it, more difficult to do and carry with it a little higher risk, um, potentially even much higher risk? Yes, absolutely. So you have to sort of take all of that into consideration when choosing to use this technique. What are our plans with this patient? Mm -hmm. um, here's the different ways that you can configure the cannulas for VB, you can do two femoral venous, one lower for the access, one higher, as would be in the first to the, the first image on the left. You can have uh, in this way, you can see that it's sort of the same thing. One's lower, one's higher. In the third, you see the two different ways of doing it. One's in the femoral vein, one's in the IJ, but all the way in the right atrium. And the other one, you also have the IVC, but a little higher in the right atrium, not quite as deep. So there's a lot of different ways, and it sort of tells you, based on your spinal processes, where those cannulas are located within the uh, vena cable system. The Avalon, uh, is it the solution to recirculation? No. Um, is it really a great cannula that really does work? Yes. Um, but, but positioning is the biggest uh, contributor to recirculation in this cannula. If it's in too deep or in too shallow, uh, there's a variety of things that can happen. We have had some that have migrated out for a variety of reasons, proning the patient, moving the patient. It, it, you know, I don't think anybody ever inadvertently pulled it because we sew these things in, but maybe the patient's size changed so much uh, in terms of their heart that it has actually migrated out of the IVC and flopped over into the uh, left, into the uh, right, right ventricle, yeah. actually gone through the tricuspid valve and been in the actual ventricle. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that was very interesting. We obviously had to replace it. It's not easy to reposition. You need fluoro and you need TEE. So it's not an easy thing to put in, but once it's in, if positioned well, um, you can have really good uh, outcomes with it. You oh. will still have some recirculation, but it can be trivial, like 5 to 10%. Well, I, with these long-term ECMOs and with how much moving we have done of these patients, it really has just become a normal part of our, 
plan of care. Don't you find that we are adjusting cannulas more frequently now since we are moving these patients? Because we know they're in, uh, in the correct position initially. We, we have our recirculation device that we can use, but over time it does seem like at some point all of our patients' cannulas get adjusted. I think there's a different reason for that. I think that the, I think that, that the problem had always occurred but I think there is a much different reason for why we um, are readjusting the cannula more frequently. So if okay. you'll indulge I'll me for that. just a moment, mm -hmm. I, will, I will make sure that I make that point as we move forward. This is the Crescent cannula. It has a very similar configuration to the Avalon. The only, uh, you can put it into the right IJ. It basically is gonna act exactly the same. It has some advantage in the sense that it can be put in the left subclavian and cross over the innominate vein and then down into the atrium, into the IVC, and uh, uh, you can use it in that way. It's supposed to improve mobility um, and have less positioning problems, but that has not, again, necessarily been my experience. Um, for whatever reason, these things do get moved around, migrate. You can have it sewn in, but if the uh, skin becomes less taut, the, uh, the suture becomes a little loose, the uh, size of the heart, maybe it was stuffed before and now it's smaller, how far out you put it before you get it in. There's just so many things that seem to be contributing to what we're noticing, and I'm going to explain what I was saying earlier, noticing as a malposition issue. Mm. Got it. And uh, we're getting much better, I think, at really recognizing its position via radio, via x-ray mm -hmm. um, yes. and being able to see it. We've already talked about the Protect Duo. Uh, there's a, uh, what, a, what an x-ray looks like with an Avalon or a Crescent in. This happens to be an Avalon. And you can see here that it is definitely infradiaphragmatic. That's something that you definitely want it to be. This patient obviously has had a sternotomy, but this is VV ECMO. And if you look here, if you look at this cannula on an x-ray, you'll see that it becomes narrower at this point. And you can really appreciate the little divot on this. This is where the outlet is, is that transition point. And that's what you see here in this, uh, in this uh, diagram or drawing. So if you are schematic. So if you look at this, you're accessing here, you're accessing somewhere up here, but you're returning here. And that is the point where the cannula narrows. And that's why this is all drainage coming up a, a, a lumen and then this needs to be like that because this is drainage and return both. Does that make sense? Yes. Now, with the, obviously you can see the, the narrowing of the cannula, but is there a way when you're looking at this x-ray to see which, I mean, are you looking at the outside orientation to make sure it is actually pointing in the right direction? You can't tell that from this. But can you use... Uh, how the cannula is on the outside on the neck. Yes. So it is intended for the return to be, so you want both the axis and return to be flush with the face as it's, as it's straight, and you want the return to be on the top, superior. Right. Yes. Right. Okay. And that's one of, that's, that's really the, the only, only true indicator that you okay. have. Now you can look at echo. Mm -hmm. And if you can look at an echo where you're looking up through the tricuspid valve into the right atrium, mm -hmm. you can, if you're really good, maybe appreciate the jet. Uh, but I would have a very hard time yeah, with that. I, I don't think I have do the that. skills. I don't know that. I don't know anyone that can do that. But I'm sure there is somebody that can. Mm -hmm. That's the. But that is the only. John, do you have anything to contribute to that? Is there some other way? To yeah. uh, measure its orientation. Yeah, there's there's radio. If you're, is this the Avalon you're showing or the Crescent? Because Avalon. The Crescent, yeah, the Crescent has radio opaque dots. They have a triangle of three dots. Uh, if you look, if you're, you can see the radio opaque 
dots, and it makes a little bit of an arrow shape because it's a triangle. So what happens is where the outflow is coming into the atrium on the crescent, you would have two dots. If we're looking at this patient, you would have two dots on our left side of the cannula and one dot where the outflow is. So it sort of makes an arrow. Uh, sort of, so you would uh, have two here. dots here. Two dots. Let me see if I can uh, do yeah, this. Let's see if your mouse. You would have two dots here. Oh no, down by the outflow. Yeah, down by the outflow. Oh, here. So yeah. you'd have two so dots here and one dot there. And one dot central. So it's pointing the way it should go. Right. And then right. in addition, you always have to. And there's all there is already opaque markers, by the way, on the crescent, on the SVC holes, and the IVC holes, just to give you a distance and a location uh, reference but you're really looking for that outflow to be right into your tricuspid valve. Mm -hmm. And you should be able to see that on an x-ray on the uh, on the crescent. And yeah, I'll tell you what. We are, Our lungs are so whited out, yeah. uh, we can barely, and this yeah. takes a lot of uh, technique, we can, uh, we're really looking to see where the tip is. Um, yeah. We are having such a hard time because this is so bright, so whited out from the COVID lung that it's it would be, I don't, I've looked and I don't see those markers on any of the cases that we've done so far. I know they're there, but I yeah. have not been able to see them. I so didn't realize they were there. That's actually very clever. Orientation, yes. Well, it is, but you know, of course, it's a two-dimensional radiograph. So yes, that would help you give you an idea if you are just reversed completely, yes. but it's not going to give you much in the way of nuanced angle mm -hmm. and so optimal position I don't think I think the best way is to see that this is flush mm -hmm. inferior is the access superior is your return mm -hmm. yeah and the definitive is the TEE that your flow yeah. is going right to yeah. right of course right right well you you hope that most of the yeah. ones are swirling for me I can't it's really hard for me to appreciate sometimes on those, at least, you know, depending on their cardiac output, but that's a different issue. So I don't think I need to show you all this. Cannula size, give you an idea. Bigger is not always better. Sometimes you can oversize them and you're just stuck, stuffed in there. Yeah, you're stuck in there. And you have the tissue of the vessel being pulled in. Yeah, it's especially in. if they're hypo, if they're hypovolemic, it even becomes worse. Some con complications, common com complications with VV ECMO. Recirculation is the most common of these complications. Uh, some recirculation so, clues. Go ahead. On that last slide, real quick, I want to point something out to the audience. When you were showing that slide, slide 10 minutes ago with all the cannulations there, when you have two cannulas aiming towards each other, you, you have to have at least a 10 centimeter rule from tip to tip and that's not very much that's only about four inches but that is the you want to be at least 10 centimeters distance between your inflow cannula and your your drainage cannula if you mm -hmm. can be more than that you'll re reduce your recirculation and these configurations even more mm -hmm. yeah, very good i agree um here are some recirculation clues if you're our patients arterial saturation is dropping but your pre-oxygenator saturation Climbing, that tends to be a really clear indication of recirculation. Um, and of course, recirculation decreases effective ECMO flow, sometimes increasing your flow, thinking that I can improve this patient's arterial saturation can actually make matters worse. So it depends uh, on what's going on. You need to usually address the issue, and that's going to bring me back to what we were talking about. Uh, measuring recirculation at the bedside. So what I believe is we're measuring recirculation now. Yes. So we're seeing these issues of why is this patient saturation not doing as well as it was or as well as we expect. Mm -hmm. We look at an x-ray and it looks like it's okay. Yeah. But we do a recirculation and that recirculation validates that we are actually having a problem. Right. And that's why I believe, going back to what you had mentioned earlier, that we're seeing more and more repositioning so, because we now have a definitive test. We probably had this all along. We just had no way to validate it. Correct. Unless the patient was really suffering with their saturations going down, And we're just guessing. Yeah. So now we can, while we're readjusting it, 
measure the recirculation and refine or refined, whichever you want to choose, the optimal location of the cannula to achieve the best result from the ECMO. Can you believe we used to do ECMO without this thing? Yes, I do. <laughs> We still do some places. I know, but it's pretty great. And uh, it is. It's an excellent device. I truly think that anyone doing ECMO should have it. Uh, it works very well. It has identified, it has saved several of our cases in that moment. I'm not going to sure. say save them so that they went on to live. It helped us to provide the best therapy that we could for that patient. And I want to. Have you, guys, have you guys seen the latest LSO recommendation? I think it's about 90 days ago. LSO, the organization, is now strongly recommending that all BV patients have this type of device to determine recirculation. Yeah, wow. absolutely. That's great. And uh, yeah, that's that. I, I'm glad that they finally that they finally came around to do that. Uh, yeah. Because I do think it is a very, uh, very useful device. Well, it's even become, you know, in the beginning, we were, you were, you know, going to talk to these intensivists and these surgeons about this. And it was novel, at least for our area. I got a lot of eye rolling. Yeah. And now we get frequent requests, you know, oh, hey, can we go ahead and do a recirculation? Mm -hmm. And before it was kind of a, not an ordeal, but, you know, Joe had to go in and do it. Now all our staff is trained to do it. And, you know, uh, someone asked, and we're like, oh, no problem. Here. We just don't have enough machines. We just don't have enough machines. That's the biggest problem because I'm, so, uh, you know, okay. I actually think I'm a reasonably decent perfusionist. Okay. Decent. I used to be really good. I'm kind of decent now. I'm apparently a horrible businessman <laughs> because I do it for free. Oh, the Right. Yeah. We yeah. do this for free. They don't pay for the device. They don't pay for us doing it. And I move it from hospital to hospital. They don't pay for it. our transport. They don't pay for nothing. <laughs> um, but we do it because we have an interest in, you know, doing the best that we can for the patient and our thing. And I have to admit, and uh, of course, you know, for, for, for uh, transparency and full disclosure, uh, Transonic did donate the device, at least, to us. So that's why we only have one. Mm. And so I didn't have to pay for that device. I'm sure they would love for me to buy 10 more. Yeah. Um, but, you know, they're not that expensive. If you're a big hospital, 25000 somewhere around there. It is FDA approved for this purpose. So it's not just an experimental device. This is actually approved uh, by the FDA for this intended purpose, but it has two purposes. Yeah. It also measures intra-oxygenator uh, intra yeah. blood volume. Can you please elaborate more on the ELSA device and also point out to the ELSA recommendation that John just mentioned? Thank you. Oh. Yes, we can do that. Uh, it's in the latest ELSO. Will um, Amit, if you could do me a favor, send me an email to info at uh, or contact at perfusioneducation.com or info at perfweb.us, whichever one you want to use. And if John, if David, if you could put that up, our email address, send me an email and I will send you all of the information that I have on the ELSA meter and how to reach out to them and get, of course, that information. But they're a great company. They have a great flow meter device. It's very nice. But it measures intraoxygenator blood volume, which will tell you if you are developing clot in your oxygenator. And you really don't understand how much. Sounds good. Thank you, Joe. You're welcome, Amit. Um, how much clot is actually in these oxygenators. So if you measure oxygenator blood volume, which you see here at 178, and you have a baseline or you know the oxygenator has a blood volume of, let's just say, 200 cc's, I'm not, I'm not going to do the math, but this particular patient has an 88% oxygenator blood volume percentage of what it should have been or what your baseline was. If you see that continuing to go down, there is only one thing that's going to be in there. It's not styrofoam, it's clot. 
So as that space is occupied by clot, your oxygenator blood volume continues to decrease. Now the recirculation, 16%, that's acceptable. Um, I will give you a caveat to the device, which is very important. If your recirculation is extremely high, but the cannula is really positioned well. And you've got good saturations and all of that? No. Oh, no. Patient's doing, no, usually not doing very well. Okay. Um, your your, your uh, recirc is, is, is very, very high, uh, despite what appears to be really good cannula position. It is very indicative of very low cardiac output syndrome. Oh. Because the blood isn't getting washed through the tricuspid valve. And it's get, having much more opportunity to recirculate. Because yeah, it's hanging the out there longer. Correct. Mm -hmm. If, on the other hand, your recirculation is absolute zero, and I will tell you, there is never going to be a time when it is absolute zero We've because the surgeon... It's not because the surgeon can put the cannula in so effectively or yeah. so perfectly. Maybe my surgeon. It's generally <laughs> because the patient has very high cardiac mm -hmm. output and there's almost no time delay. So it's going mm -hmm. through the, you're giving the injection into the return of the ECMO and it's just getting washed right down into the uh, RV and out and not much time at all. So generally when you see zero, it's your cardiac output's very high. You see uh, very high recirculation, it's cardiac output's very low. Yeah, don't you think it's been a very useful tool in validating our suspicions? You know, we know something's going on with this patient. Uh, perhaps the surgeons, you know, got their busy schedule. They don't want to necessarily come by and make an adjustment or, or whatever. And now we have, we have something that we can say, hey, we know what we're talking about. Look at yes. this number. Yes, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And they're now believing, I mean, they believe in it. Like you said, mm -hmm. they started off eye rolling mm -hmm. and they have since become um, almost, uh, uh, what's that word when you become Obsessive. A, a, a prophet. Oh, a prophet. Yeah, yeah <laughs> of the, uh, uh, for the device. Yeah. So, it, suddenly it's become their idea. Yes. Okay. Yes. So now it was them that had, they, they're the ones who found it. All right. <laughs> <laughs> you just gonna run it. So uh, I want to talk. My last slide is about VQ mismatch. We all know what VQ mismatch, ventilation perfusion mismatch, is in the lungs, but I want to talk about VQ mismatch of stressing of the ECMO system. So if you look at the left, the ECMO circuit. And that's on the left. I didn't label it. I'm sorry. I did this slide this morning. You have a PaO2 of 350 coming out of the oxygenator. Saturation is obviously 100%. And you're flowing 4.2 liters per minute. And let's just assume for the sake of this argument, there's no recirculation or 10% recirculation. So your effective ECMO flow is 3.8. We'll just say that. On the right side is the patient's PaO2 and saturation. Well, why? How does that make sense? People will ask me this question all of the time, and yet it's so obvious. This is a VQ mismatch of the ECMO. If this patient's lungs cannot contribute well to their oxygenation, and I'm only flowing 4.2 liters per minute here, then what's coming out here, we'll say, is 4.2 liters going into the right ventricle. If their native cardiac output is 10 liters and their venous saturation coming back is 65%, then over more than double of the ECMO flow is making its way through the pulmonary circulation into the left atrium, into the left ventricle and coming out of the aorta. This is why you will see on a VV ECMO with poor lung uh, contribution or very bad lung contribution, maybe high oxygen extraction rate at the tissue level, especially if they start becoming a little septic and or their temperature is a little high, whatever the cause may be, or they're moving, they're not paralyzed, whatever the case may be, higher extraction rate, 
and they have a high cardiac output. In this particular scenario, especially the heart rate of 130, uh, which is also its own problem, but I won't get into all the details of that. But you are much better off, if you can, reducing this patient's cardiac output, either through beta blockade, shorter long-term acting, whatever you may want to do, and get this down to about six or seven, if you can, or five or six, and that is going to automatically increase your systemic oxygen saturation from your arterial blood gas. And uh, so that's VQ mismatch of the ECMO system. And uh, that was my last slide. Look at that. I finished right on time. That's pretty darn good. Any, uh, any questions or comments? Tammy will go with you first, and then I'll ask John. No, I think I kind of commented as I went along. So, John, I'll give it to you. Yeah, I, I like that last slide because um, I want to say to the audience, Esmolol, please use Esmolol to reduce yeah. your patient's heart rate. You should not have an ECMO patient banging away at 130 beats per minute and a cardiac output, which a lot of times, Joe, it's more like 15, yeah. not 10. But one important thing, too, that I have discussion all the time, this conversation all the time, on ECMO, we are not able to capture, you know, anywhere near the, the venous return that we are able to capture in the OR. 40, you showed an example there of, of basically 40%, four liters going through the ECMO, an additional six liters not going through the ECMO because the total, total cardiac output of 10. On a good day, you might have 60% captured through the ECMO. And there's still 40% of the blood that's going by the ECMO, not being oxygenated if the lungs are completely whited out. And hence, you result in a pretty poor uh, arterial saturation in the patient. And you're scratching your head going, we're flowing six liters, five or six liters on the ECMO. We don't have much mixing. What is the problem? You have to look at what the patient cardiac output is doing. Well, I'm telling you right now, I have coined the phrase VQ mismatch of the ECMO circuit. And I guarantee you before this day is over, somebody else will say they originated it. They will <laughs> steal that idea because that's what they do all of the time. I even know who it will be, but I'm not going to say it online because I don't want to be overly controversial right now.